So good to see you. Good crowd this morning. The Family Center is full. It's, it's a great day to be together. I, I also want to remind you something we talked about last week. With our growth, one of the difficult things for me is, is being able to meet and greet you after services or before. I mean, I, I can't even greet you before, in here anyway. And, and that bothers me. You know, when I was in Cassville, Missouri, of course, there's a different dynamic. Um, you know, a church of 200. I would work a little bit, and I'd go to somebody's house and drink coffee, and, all, and I miss that. So for the next few weeks, I don't know how long, at 4 o'clock in the special events room, just come up here if you'd like, and let's talk. Um, we can fellowship with one another, and we, we can talk. And uh, now understand this won't be like a counseling session, so if you want to do that, call during the week, right? <laughs> But uh, if you just want to share some things and let's just fellowship, uh, I figured out this morning how to make coffee, so uh, I, think we can, I think we can do that too. I'd love, to, I'd love to talk with you. There's a gentleman in London who owns a grocery store. The guy's name is Sohan Singh, and he has taken an interesting approach to his business. He has banned customers. True story. He had started by banning smoking from his customers. Then he banned them from bringing in baby strollers and pets until eventually he just banned customers altogether. Now, if you're a customer at his grocery store, you have to look through the window and then you ring a bell and then if you want something, you exchange your money and goods through a hatch in the door. Now, Sohan Singh says this, yeah, it's hurt business. But he said, but I'm a man of principle, and I stand by my decision. I think Sohan Singh has lost sight of his purpose, right? I mean, I would think if I'm owning a business, customers would be crucial to the success of that business. And I think Christians do that sometimes as well. I think we lose sight of our purpose or our goal. It's easy to do. I think all too often we expect the quote-unquote customer, you know, to get cleaned up before they come through the door. To abide by certain principles and things before they can ever be welcomed here. We are to take people where they're at, right? Jesus did. We got to keep the church pure, yes, but we shouldn't expect people to be at our level when they walk through these doors. English writer G.K. Chesterton once said that every man who goes to a prostitute is looking for God. And I think that's true. Every man who buys $100 worth of lottery tickets hoping to strike it rich, is really looking for God. Every person who gets high daily on Oxycontin or Vicodin is really looking for God. They're searching for fulfillment and satisfaction in something that only God can provide. Everyone has a hole in their soul. And that's a God-shaped hole. They may just not realize it. They don't necessarily wake up and say, hey, I'm going to get drunk today hoping I can find God. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think the people that are searching for satisfaction and fulfillment in empty things have a God-shaped hole. And that us as Christians, as the church, we need to see them as that. And we need to see ourselves as people who can stop their search. As people who can help fill that void. Look with me at Luke chapter 18. Starting in verse 35. As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. 
They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Keep reading. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowds, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Some of you who are about my age, a little older, might remember The Odd Couple. Remember that movie slash TV show? This movie, which was later made into a TV show starring Jack Klugman and Tony Randall, was about how two opposites live together, how they can get along even though they're completely different. And of course, the hilarity and the frustration is what the viewers tuned in to see. The idea was two men, both had been divorced from their wives, maybe separated from them. I don't remember exactly how that played out. They come together and live together and they could not be more different. One is very you know, straight-laced, gregarious, everything has to be so, and the other one is very carefree and, uh, you know, not obsessive-compulsive at all. But the idea was that opposites attract, and you've probably heard that phrase. When I do premarital counseling, I ask the couple to do a personality test, as Hayden and Liz are doing right now. We did the personality test the other night, and what you often find more times than not is that you're quite different from one another. And that's okay. Why would you want to marry yourself, right? It's okay that opposites attract as long as you understand the differences and how you can work through those differences. And we understand that to be true in other things in life, right? There are certain things that we would think never really go together, but once we try them, we think, how have I been missing this all my life? like chicken and waffles, right? Who would have ever thought to put a piece of chicken on top of a waffle and smother it in syrup? But it's divine, right? How many of you buy a chocolate frosty from Wendy's and dip your french fries in it? Yeah, yeah, Rebecca. We understand that certain things that should never touch each other, when they do, when we give them a try, they're actually really good things. And Jesus does this a lot. The biblical writers do this a lot in talking about Jesus. Two people, two things that shouldn't go together. And we see that here in Luke chapter 18 and 19. Two people whose lives really shouldn't touch, whose stories really shouldn't go together, come together while they are opposite. 
They tell the same point. Two very different people with one main point. Now understand, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And when people were on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, they often traveled in packs. And if there was a rabbi among them, he would teach as they walked along. And that's exactly what's happening. There is a rabbi, Jesus, in their midst. And this traveling pack has Jesus speaking to them and teaching them along the way. They go through a village, and if you were a villager that wasn't going to make the trek to Jerusalem, you stood by the side of the road, and you welcomed people that were traveling as they went through your village. That's what's happening here as well. But there's one man, a blind beggar, sitting beside the road. That was his space. That was, that's what he was confined to. He cries out from his pallet, wanting Jesus to, to help him. The crowd tries to get him to be quiet. Why? Because well, Jesus is teaching. Don't interrupt Jesus when he's teaching. But the man cries out all the more. In fact, he uses a different word, Luke does, for cry in verse 39 than he did from verse 38. Verse 38, the shout there is just simply uh, trying to get the attention of someone. But the shout that is used in verse 39 is like an animal cry. It is a scream of desperation. And wouldn't you scream in desperation if you had been in that condition and you knew that the Son of Man was walking through your village and could help you? There's a lesson right there, not to get too far off the beaten path, but there's a lesson right there. Being comes before doing. The church is filled with great elders, great teachers, great deacons, great uh, youth ministers, etc. The church is filled with great people doing great things. People who work at ministry with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. People who do good, but being comes before doing. You know, I find it so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day, especially when I first started in ministry. You know, Sunday comes around every week whether you want it to or not. And so you're working diligently to get two sermons done every week. The church I was at, you did two sermons. You did the Bible class on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. You did the Wednesday night devotional and you did the bulletin. So there was a lot of things to get done. And it was easy for me to have somebody stop in and me think, oh, wow, you're, you're distracting me. Until I realize that people are not a distraction to ministry. They are your ministry, right? And Jesus teaches that right here. Go through the list of faith hall of fame inductees in Hebrews chapter 11. And what you'll find, whether it's Moses or whether it's Abraham or whether it's Noah, these were people, before they ever did anything, they were something. Being comes before doing. And as Christians, that is absolutely true with us, or at least it should be, that we are to be before we do. The Lord calls us to be before we do. So you have this blind beggar who recovers his sight. Then immediately following this episode, you have this tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. We've talked about the tax collectors in the past. They were not well thought of. They were grouped in with the murderers and the robbers. Um, I know we've said this before, but a tax collector was a contracted employee of the Roman government. The Roman government set a tax, a figure, that they were to collect from every single citizen, and the contracted employee would do that. But since there was no social media or TV or radio or anything like that, no one knew what that predetermined figure was. So the tax collector, as long as he turned in that figure to the Roman government, he could get whatever else money he wanted from anyone there. And oftentimes that's what happened. You can imagine there was great exploitation and abuse. Zacchaeus was a hated man. Nobody liked Zacchaeus. He climbs up in a sycamore tree to get a view of this Jesus who is passing through. And Jesus 
stops and takes notice. It's interesting when you look at this story that no one wanted anything to do with Jesus, I mean, excuse me, with Zacchaeus, but Christ, even though he taught it was harder for a man to enter the kingdom of heaven who was rich than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, still, he stopped and took notice of Zacchaeus. How much harder would it be to enter the kingdom of heaven when you got rich off the backs of people who were poor? Every time the people looked at Zacchaeus, they saw the reason for their poverty, right? But who else is going to go to Zacchaeus? Who else was going to go to him? Who would set aside their hatred to go to Zacchaeus? Apparently no one. Jesus was the only one. And they say he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What a compliment, right? They meant it as a negative, but that's a great compliment. Wouldn't you like to be known as a friend of sinners? You should. We should all want to be known as a friend of sinners. That's what Jesus was. That's what we should be as well. And you know the rest of the story. After his encounter with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus changes the course of his life. He, he gives half of all he owns to the poor. He's prepared to pay fourfold restitution to anyone who he's, who he's defrauded. And Jesus responds, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. So you have these two stories, okay? These two stories that are laid out side by side that really don't seem too similar. Because you have two very different people here, right? You have a victim and a victimizer. And we can understand why Jesus would be all for the victim. If we were traveling in the crowd that day, we would have said, oh yes, by all means, Jesus, go and help the blind beggar. After we told him to be quiet and we really saw what Jesus is doing, we'd say, yeah, that makes sense, right? You help the marginalized people. You help the beggar that's sitting beside of the road. If at all possible, you meet his need, right? We understand that. The victimizer, not so much. The fact that Jesus would go out of his way to help a thief, someone who was extorting people, someone who was making money off of poor people, we don't understand that one as much. We're not as happy about Jesus helping those, or at least we're not as in tune to that part of the mission. But Luke 18, 35 through 19, 10 isn't just about Jesus being for the oppressed. It's about Jesus being for the oppressor as well. We understand being for the one who has zero authority, zero money, zero in the way of resources, zero standing in society, zero worth. We understand being for them. What we don't always buy into is being for the one who is against those folks, who has made a habit of keeping those folks down, who has made a habit of victimizing those folks. But when you set aside your feelings for a moment, you see something beautiful here. You see that Jesus is for all people. And this is where it gets a little reckless in our minds, this whole grace and mercy and forgiveness thing. This is where it becomes a little scandalous to us. You mean Jesus is for the rapist as well as the rape victim? Yeah, he wants them both in heaven. You mean Jesus is for the, the, the Jewish captive in the concentration camp as well as the Nazi who is running it? Yeah, you think about that. We love grace and mercy and forgiveness when it touches the oppressed, but when it touches the oppressor, maybe not so much. What about when grace and mercy and forgiveness gets offensive? What about when grace and mercy and forgiveness reaches a level that we feel is unnecessary? You look at the two different responses from the people in verses 43 
or actually back up 42 and 43 of Luke 18, it says, And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Then look at Luke 19 and verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now you got to understand, it's not exactly a perfect correlation because the Jewish leaders at this time would not have been for either one of these people. They would have assumed that the blind beggar did something wrong and was sinful, and that's why that God was against him. And if God's against him and punishing him for, for what he's done and made him blind, then we're going to be against him too. But also, Zacchaeus was a man who made his money off the backs of poor people. He was grouped in with the robbers and the thieves and the murderers, and so therefore, they wouldn't have had any use for him either. But, you look at this, when the blind man was healed, some cheer for this miraculous healing, but in a short time, others jeer him for his going to Zacchaeus. They cheer when he healed the blind beggar, but they jeer when they see him taking this grace thing a little too far. It's interesting when you look at this. I think if I'm being totally honest, I find myself in the crowd. I'd find myself probably being one that cheered when the blind beggar was, was healed and maybe not so much when Zacchaeus was told to come down out of that tree and Jesus went to his house. You know, I think about justice and what we talked about last week and vengeance and how that needs to be left up to God but how it's so hard to do that but when I start thinking in those terms and I would encourage all of us when we start thinking in those terms we have to remember something and that is we are all despised all of us we are all offensive we are our hatred for the oppressor can be easily turned around on us because we are all oppressors we have all offended a holy God, right? We are all responsible for the death of another human being. You think about yourself as the greater debtor, and it's easier to see things from Jesus' perspective. And if we were in Zacchaeus' sandals, we would want grace and mercy and forgiveness as well, wouldn't we? Both of these men are crying out. Zacchaeus in a little different way, but they're both crying out. The blind beggar is crying out from the side of the road. And yet Zacchaeus is doing it from a tree. He's doing it from a distance in a little bit different way. He climbs up in a sycamore tree, which as I understand are, are easy to climb and they're leafy and so they have a, a lot of cover. He could hide, but Jesus understood that he was hiding and he tells him to come down out of the tree. Jesus goes to the blind beggar who is sitting by the side of the road. He goes to Zacchaeus in a different way, but he was still seeking. He was still seeking. He doesn't let Zacchaeus hide. When Zacchaeus climbed up, Jesus said, come down. And this brings up a quality of Jesus that I don't think we always consider. Is that Jesus goes and hunts. He searches for those who are lost. Do you ever think about that? That Jesus actually seeks out those who are lost. We don't often think of Jesus that way. Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming to town, and so he climbs up in a tree to get a glimpse of him. Jesus goes into town seeking out Zacchaeus, seeking an encounter with him. We often picture Jesus 
as one who just sits tight and lets people come to him. But he says, his mission is, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this is really incredible when you think about it because Zacchaeus climbed up in a tree to get his sights set on Jesus, yet Jesus comes to Jericho with a plan to set his sights on Zacchaeus. Our Savior was on the move. He was hunting down those who were lost. Imagine that, that Jesus is looking for the lost. Kind of puts a damper on Calvinism, doesn't it? Jesus seeks out the lost and confronts them. That confrontation represents a moment of truth. It did for the blind beggar and it does for Zacchaeus as well. The blind beggar asked, what do you want me to do for you, right? And you think, well, that's a silly question. I mean, what do you think he wants you to do for him? But it's not that silly when you think about it. Because we get really narrow focused, don't we? To the point that we can't see past our nose sometimes. What do you want me to do for you? And maybe the blind beggar was thinking, well, I could use some money. I mean, can you get me something to eat? We do that. I mean, we pray, you know, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Well, could you send some rain? Pretty dry. Could you make certain that my guy gets elected because the country would be a whole lot better if my guy got elected? What do you want me to do for you? Can you make me whole? Can you make me more like you? Can you make me more like Jesus? Not, can you make me live longer? Can you, can you make sure that I never have to endure any trials or tribulations? No, can you make me more like you? So it's not really a silly question when you think about it. It's also not silly when you consider that the answer to that question would change the blind beggar's life. Jesus making him well means that he cannot return to the side of the road. He can no longer be a beggar. He cannot take handouts. Now he's got to get up. He's got to find a job. And he's got to do something with his life, right? I mean, his life's completely altered. Some people would rather sit by the road. Jesus says, is that what you want? Or do you want something better? Do you want something bigger for your life? Here's how the blind beggar's story ends. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. Now, here's Zacchaeus' moment of truth. You ready? Come down. What an invitation, right? I mean, the Lord is wanting to go where you live. Think about how you might respond to this command by Jesus. Come down, I'm going to your house today. Can we do it tomorrow? I mean, my house is a mess. I mean, just let me clean some things up. I promise I'll have you over as soon as I get things in order. Jesus says, no. Coming today. I'm coming to your house today. You don't have an hour to get it cleaned up. When someone comes to this quote-unquote house, do we expect them to be cleaned up? Do we expect them to have things in order? No, today. Come today. I will take you where you're at, Zacchaeus, but I'm not going to leave you there. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. That's how Zacchaeus' story ends. You look at the picture again. Look at it closely. Zoom in. In one instance, Jesus finds someone low, low in every respect. He's on the ground, right? You can't get any lower than that. 
He's needy, he's desperate, he's longing for a cure. And when Jesus finds him, he picks him up. But in another story, Jesus finds someone who is high, who is up on a pile of money, right? Who's up in a tree and in a position of power and authority. And Jesus does what? He brings him low. He brings him down. Both are lost, both are broken. And Jesus meets both of them at their house, doesn't he? Where's the blind beggar's house? Beside the road on that pallet, that mat, right? That's his house. And Jesus enters his space and he heals him. He enters Zacchaeus' space as well. He comes to his house. And in both instances, he meets them at their table, right? In essence, that's what he does. And that's what, that's what we do as well. The grace of God meets us at our table and leads us to the great heavenly banquet. I'm going to sit at your table, blind beggar. I'm going to sit at your table, Zacchaeus. I'm going to lead you to my banquet. That's what the grace of God does. It enters into your house as broken and as messed up and in disarray as it is. It gives you hope for something better. So this is the remote control to my TV. It's rather small, as you can tell. I have internet TV. So I have one of those smart TVs. I don't know if it has buttons. I hadn't been able to find them yet. But even if it did, I'm not sure that that would work because it's internet TV. You got this Roku, you know, we could get into all that, but I don't even understand it. So get a five-year-old to explain it to you. They can do that. This right here is my lifeline on Saturdays during college football season. I sit on the couch, and when I sit on the couch on Saturdays, Saturday, by the way, is the one day that I do very little, if anything, ministry-related as far as my work here at the church. Jimmy Jividen gave me that advice, and I've held to it. Saturday is the one day. Now, if there's a funeral or something like that, obviously. You know, if there's an emergency, obviously. But other than that, on a normal Saturday, I don't do anything up here at the office. I sit on my couch sometimes and watch football if there's good games on and this stays really close to me because it is small it's easy for it to get lost it falls between the cushions sometimes it ends up under the couch one time for a reason I cannot explain it was in the fridge when I went to look for it <laughs> it's easy for this to get lost and when it gets lost the house gets turned upside down the cushions come flying off the furniture gets moved the refrigerator gets cleaned out I mean whatever it takes to find the remote because this is my connection to the source of power so that I can watch college football. Now I want you to picture Jesus ransacking the earth, searching for one who is lost, even one as small as Zacchaeus, turning the world upside down, trying to find those who are lost so that he can connect them to the power source to God so that they can be with him for all eternity Jesus said for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost that's his desire it's his desire to connect with those who are lost and connect them to the heavenly father and that should be our desire as well right because you know there is hope in that statement the word lost is a word that contains 
all sorts of negative connotations, right? There's nothing good associated with lost. If you're lost, that's a bad thing, whether spiritually or even physically. I don't know where I am. I'm lost, right? No, no, no. There's hope in that word. There's hope in the word lost. Because as long as you're alive, as long as you're drawing breath, the lost can be found. And that's how we need to see the lost. Whether they're the victim or the victimizer, we need to see them as people who need the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of God just as much as we did. We uncover every rock. We throw every cushion out of the way. We ransack the earth looking for the lost and taking advantage of the opportunity to lead them to Christ. I don't know where you're at this morning as far as your daily walk with God or if you've even started a daily walk with God, but I do want you to know this. If you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you've never been here. Maybe you've been here on occasion. Maybe you don't even know really what this is all about. You don't understand the songs that we sing. You don't know Genesis from Revelation. That's okay. That is perfectly fine. Maybe you are so messed up that you're at rock bottom and you don't know where to turn, so you came here. That is perfectly fine. Because we'll take you where you're at. We won't leave you there. But we'll take you where you're at. So, if you have a need this morning that we can help you with, I promise you the roof won't fall in if you come forward and let us help you. Come as we stand and as we sing.